we are continuing the Lord, the Lord series. So, today we're going to talk about the patience of God, or a God who is slow to anger. I'm going to tell you a story of myself not being slow to anger. I remember my one golf experience. Uh, it should come as no surprise to you, for those of you who know me, that I'm a very intense dude. I'm very competitive. I don't like being trash at sports. And I went to golf with my brothers-in-law. Uh, they took me the day before my wedding, because apparently that's what you do. It's a stag thing. Uh, we went, and my very first ball, I obliterated, but not in the right direction. Um, that, that, sorry, that's, that's a lie. Uh, my very first swing, I didn't even hit the ball. I put a massive gouge in the grass. My second swing, I crushed the ball, but it did not go the direction I wanted. It went somewhere beyond. That ball's still not found. Uh, I was like, you know what? Within two swings, I knew this sport is not for me. I, I don't think I'm going to be good at it. My brother-in-law was just trying to be a homie, and he was like, hey, Fred, just take a mulligan. Dropped another ball for me. And I was like, a what? What'd you call me? And he's like, no, 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 a mulligan. Uh, and if you've never golfed, a mulligan is when the group that you're with, you know, the pair or the four of you, someone just drops on the ball and says, didn't see nothing, you know, swing again. And I was flabbergasted. I'm like, what sport lets you have do-overs? So I, of course, quickly abused those opportunities, and I demanded a mulligan every single time I swung and missed the greens, which was out of 18 holes, I think 17. So I was trash, I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I was thinking of this story this week because I was reflecting on the sermon from the last time we gathered two weeks ago, where if you remember, we talked about God giving second chances. We talked that, uh, that the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is a God of second chances, who never tires of giving us another opportunity to do the right thing. But then I was remembering this story because I think it, it begs a question in our minds, uh, what do we do with the second chances that God gives us? What is the nature of Christian life? Can we keep swinging and missing? Can I take mulligan after mulligan after mulligan every single time I disobey God? He gives second chances after all. I think this is a very challenging question. The reality for me was that my mulligans ran out after like three shots. My brothers-in-law were no longer willing. They're like, you're misusing the concept. And I think Christian life is not that different. I think all of us deep down inside wonder, God, is this the time you don't give me a second chance? Is this the time that you're going to be forever disappointed at me because I failed you yet again? I think we have this question, and God in his mercy has revealed himself not only as a God who is merciful and gracious, but also slow to anger. Slow to anger helps us understand why God gives so many ch second chances. He gives us chance after chance after chance uh, because God wants us to live a particular way. And he gives us chance after chance after chance so that we would live the way he calls us. Today we're going to be reading out of Revelation 2, and I have a very simple big idea. Christian life is conquering with the strength that God patiently provides. When you think of what do I do with the second chances God has given me, you conquer with the strength that God patiently provides. We're gonna talk about two things that we conquer. We conquer suffering and we conquer sin. So this is Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And our first point, of course, is conquering suffering. So it reads as follows. 
To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. We're jumping into Revelation chapter 2, but I want to set the historical context of this book. If you'd read chapter 1, you would know that John the Apostle is the one who wrote this book. Revelation 1, 9 to 11 tells you all about the author. I, John, John the Apostle, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John the Apostle, his primary purpose in life was to be a witness to the work of Jesus. Jesus lived, died, resurrected. He is king. He came to change the world. John shared that story. Because he shared that story, he was exiled to an island called Patmos. And from Patmos, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John the Apostle is, on, is exiled on an island for his faithful ministry in preaching the gospel. And as he's exiled, as he's alone, as he's old, towards the end of his life, he has this vision of Jesus. And Jesus says, write down what you're going to see and pass this message along to the seven churches. These seven churches are in the western half of what we call Turkey today. They're normal churches with normal people. John likely wrote this at the end of his life, probably in the 90s AD. We don't really have a date inside the book, but church history tells us that that's when he wrote. And there's one other thing we need to understand about the historical context of this book. There was persecution that was present amongst the people of God. It's very difficult to tell what is the nature or what was the nature of that persecution. As we look through church history, we know that there were moments where things were really, really bad. So if you've heard the name of Emperor Nero, a Roman uh, Caesar who in AD 64 accidentally burned a big chunk of Rome and then blamed Christians and then publicly pursued and murdered a whole bunch of Christians. So there were moments where being a Christian meant you actually died. And there were other moments where it meant that you were thrown out of the market or your family disowned you or people just talked about you behind your back. So other emperors like Domitian, which is the, the emperor during the time of John the Apostle as he's writing this book, uh, he did not like Christians, but he didn't like a lot of people. So it's hard to tell how violent he was specifically towards Christians. He was the kind of guy who just killed a bunch of people. So John is writing a letter to a bunch of churches filled with people like you and me that know being a Christian comes with a cost. Maybe you die. Maybe people hate you. For sure, there is going to be a price to pay if you follow Jesus. 
And we're focusing not on all seven churches, but on one specific one, the Church of Pergamum. And this city was an important city. It was located 16 miles from the Aegean Sea, from the ocean, and right along a trade route. This city actually was the capital of what is called, what they called Asia, what we called Turkey. So it was a significant place filled with many, many people. And one of the most significant things about it was there was a few temples that are relevant to our story. I promise this historical context is necessary for understanding the passage. There were two big temples in the city. Well, there was three, but there were two that people knew about and then the one that was the most visible. So the two that people most knew about were the temples of Athena and Asclepius. So these are goofy names, but Athena was the Greek goddess of victory. And this town had a lot of war, war veterans in it, and th they believed that Athena had blessed them, and that's why they were able to establish this town. So they worshipped her. They had a temple. It was very famous. Asclepius was the Greek god of healing. And if, if you've ever driven past uh, an ambulance, you know how they have the little staff with two serpents? That is a, a reference to Asclepius. Asclepius carried a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. And Greeks believed that he would heal people. There was a temple to Asclepius in the city of Pergamum, and there was a very famous physician who practiced medicine in that city, spending a lot of time learning human anatomy by healing gladiators, so people who got like limbs chopped off in the Colosseum. So this city, really important, full of temples. The most visible temple, though, was the Temple of Zeus. And there's a reconstruction. Yeah, so Zeus, the king of the gods, kind of a crappy guy. But this guy, they built a temple to him in this city, which was called the Acropolis. If you want to go to the next slide. This is a reconstruction held in a, a museum in Berlin. And this temple looked like a throne. The city of Pergamum was located like, on the side of a mountain. And the, the Acropolis was 1,000 feet higher than the rest of the city. So if you were walking along this trade route, you would look in towards the mountain, and you would see this massive city. And as you drew closer to the city, you would look up, and you would see what looked like a throne, a throne to the god Zeus. So the people that John is writing to are people who lived in a world where they would suffer persecution, and there were many religious options. You didn't have to follow the Christian God. If we compare that to our world today, it sounds remarkably similar. It sounds remarkably similar to what we experience. Our, our life is that we experience all levels of, of suffering for being Christian. Uh, some people don't care at all. Sometimes you get the stink eye. Sometimes it results in people actually losing their job or being killed. Not as much here in Canada, but in many places across the world. So there is persecution. And then the Christian faith is not the only game in town. There's a whole bunch of different competing religious options. In our world, we have Sikhism, Christianity, Buddhism, Islam. In their world, they had Asclepius, Athena, Zeus, emperor worship. So John is writing to a church that lives in a world that is pluralistic and Christians will endure suffering. That sounds exactly like our world today, which is why this letter is remarkably relevant for the church of today. The things that Jesus says to this church could very easily be said to us. So there's two things I want to emphasize in the first few verses of this passage. The first is how Jesus is described. In the very first verse, in verse 12, he says he's the one with, with the two-edged sword. You know, that's kind of a weird way to describe yourself. I don't know if I would ever talk about myself this way. What on earth does that mean? 
Well, if we'd read, starting in Revelation 1, verse, or verse 1, chapter 1, we would know that Jesus has used this language before. Revelation 1.16 says this. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So Jesus is holding the church in his hand. He's saying, I'm protecting you. I'm with you. You're not alone. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The sword is an image used in the scriptures to describe the words of Jesus. And not just the words of Jesus. It actually gets used to describe the, the word of God in other passages. This image is remarkably appropriate because that's what the word of God does. That's what the words of Jesus do. They cut through things. There are options. There are lots of opportunities out there to worship many other gods, to think many other things. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you have to decide, am I going to follow him? He cuts through the, the, the smoke, through the noise. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 uses the same language specifically about the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Same image. Piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus describes himself as the one who sees us truly. His words expose us because they show what really matters to us. They show what we really believe. Hebrews takes the same language to talk about, talk about God's word and reminds us that when we see what Jesus is saying, when we understand the gospel, you have to make a decision. Am I in or am I out? The word of God presses us with this reality. Jesus presents himself to Pergamum and says, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who when I speak, pushes you to make a choice. Are you guys in? And praise God, Pergamum was in. Jesus goes on in verse 13 to commend them for their faithfulness. He says, in, in a word, he says, they endured. They're the kind of church that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of many religious options, they said, we will follow Jesus. And one of them was even willing to die for Jesus. Antipas is martyred. He's a witness to who Jesus is. Jesus praises their endurance in two different ways. He says, positively, you held fast. You held fast to Jesus, to, to him. And then he also says it negatively. You, you did not deny. You didn't step away. You didn't fall back from the faith. One of them was even willing to die for it. Uh, this figure, Antipas, we know almost nothing about. He's listed here. And then we learn later in Revelation 7 that lots of other people, or Revelation 9, pardon me, that lots of Christians died. That lots of people were martyred for their faith throughout the history of the church. And Antipas was that kind of guy. We don't know much about his life. We don't know much about the circumstances of his death. But we know that he was willing to die to follow Jesus. And I think we hear stories like that and we're like, how? Like, how does someone get to that place? Like, I don't even always tell people I'm Christian. How does someone get to the place where they are willing to die for this faith? There's a group of people in Christian history called Moravians who were this kind of person, who were Antipas types of people. Uh, they rose to prominence in like the 1400s, 1500s with the Reformation. And then one of, they, they became much more popular in the 1700s, where under the leadership of a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf, 
they began the first Protestant missionary movement. It was Christian people who said, it bothers me that there are people all across the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. I'm going to go. And we know many people who have gone into the mission field. We're sending a team to Newfoundland. We, we believe in that. These people were going to places like the Caribbean, Africa, the, the, the Americas. And they knew that about half of them didn't make it. Like they would die because of various tropical diseases. So what Moravians would do is they would say goodbye to their parents and they would pack their belongings in a coffin. Uh, they said, I don't need a suitcase because I'm going to die out there. So I'm just going to bring everything in a, in a coffin. And when I die, you just ship my body back. How does someone get there? How does someone become an Antipas who's willing to die for their faith? Or a Moravian who's willing to go all across the world not expecting to come home? Uh, the answer is God empowers you. That is not a human choice. That is a supernatural inspired, supernatural influenced, supernatural empowered choice that any person can make. No one makes it of their own will. Jesus offers to help us. There's a phrase in this passage that makes that very clear. Jesus is challenging them to, to endure. He encourages them that they have endured, but he also promises that he will empower them. And you're like, where was that word? I don't remember hearing empowered. In verse 17, he says, I, I will give you secret manna. And it's one phrase, so we just fly by it. But this is a reference to the, the Exodus story where God provided manna, bread from heaven, in the wilderness. If you're not familiar with the story, Exodus 16 records it, whereas the people of Israel escaped Egypt, where they were slaves. They're wandering across the desert, and if you've ever traveled across somewhere that doesn't have water, that doesn't have food, that doesn't have refrigeration, you know, you pack your gear. And they had nothing. And as they're walking through the desert, they, they go to their leader Moses and say, like, we're going to die out here. What is God going to do? Is your God really powerful? Have we messed up in following you? And God made, brain, uh, made bread rain from heaven. God provided for his people. He provided their daily bread so they could make it through each and every day. What Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum, a church that is being pressed, a church that has watched someone die for their faith, where they're like, yeah, Jesus, we've endured, but like, I don't know if I have it in me for tomorrow. Jesus says, no, no, you have it in you for today. And just in case you're not feeling like you have it in you for today, you need to know that I'm going to give you secret manna. I'm going to give you the empowerment you need for today. I think this is a tremendous blessing of the Lord, that he gives us what we need to survive. Our natural disposition is that we worry about tomorrow. I, I don't know if I'm going to endure until tomorrow. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm going through something hard. I need help. I don't know how I can make it through today or tomorrow or the next week. God, can you help me? And what Jesus promises is manna, is daily bread. I'm going to help you get through today. And all you have to do is survive today. All you have to endure is today. Jesus tells us that we will never suffer alone. We do suffer for the faith. If you haven't, you will. And Jesus says, you won't do it alone. John 16, reminds us, Jesus' very words, he says, in this world you have many trials, many tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In that same chapter, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
What Jesus promises in this manna, in this secret manna, what Jesus promises by sending his spirit is that you will never be alone as you endure various sufferings which are different for each and every person. As you go through difficult things, the promise of God is that he will give you what you need for today. Not for tomorrow, but just for today. All you have to worry about is today. He will help you through today, and then one day he will give you eternal life. We can conquer suffering because Jesus empowers us to endure in it. I know that phrase sounds kind of weird, right? Like conquer suffering, like how on earth like conquers a war image, so in what way am I warring against suffering? Suffering is just stuff that happens to me. It's the hard things in life. It's the stuff that I would change if I could. It's the stuff that's unexpected. So how on earth can I conquer it? And in addition to that, I think we recognize that our experience of suffering is not the same as many other people across the world. We experience hard things, for sure. We lose loved ones. We experience sickness. There are people who disown us. And then you turn on the news or you're scrolling your apps and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there are like Christians who are getting beheaded in Africa. Oh, there, there are people who were buried in an earthquake in Turkey. And you're like, man, my suffering's not like that. But I'm still struggling. The words of Jesus are just as true for you as they are for the people in those other places, Jesus promises you daily bread. He promises you manna. If you endure, Jesus says, I will empower you in it. You just have to choose to endure. And Jesus says, I'm gonna help you. Take that first step and I'm going to jump in and help you. I think one specific application of this is that we can endure in suffering by actually telling people we're Christians. I don't know what your experience has been, but for most of my life, I have been quite shy about telling people that I'm a Christian. I will say vague things like, yeah, I go to church. Uh, yeah, no, like I grew up in the church. Or like, yeah, you know, I kind of go to Northview. Or yeah, you know, I, I uh, like worship on weekends or whatever. We say these general things. And I think deep down inside, we're like, well, I don't, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to get roasted. I don't want to get chirped. What if they don't want to be my friend? That fear is always present. And in Pergamum, in Antipas, in the Moravians, we have example after example of Christian people no different than you and me. The difference for them was they chose to take a step of faith and God empowered them in it. So I would like to challenge you all, take a step of faith in sharing about your faith. And God will empower you in it. I, I think this is a scary thing. I think it probably will lead to suffering in your life. But the promise of Jesus, Jesus' very words are that I will give you secret manna. No one will be able to understand why you're so bold. No one will be able to understand why you don't give up. But I'm going to be with you. You are not alone. Jesus promises secret manna to people like you and me. He will empower you to be a faithful witness, just like Pergamum was. So we conquer suffering. Secondly, we conquer sin. I'm just gonna read the passage again because it's just a few verses. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. 
But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We recognize that suffering is something we face, uh, but it is not the only pressure that we face. Suffering comes external, but sin is actually a pressure that comes from within. There's something inside us that draws us towards things that are profoundly unhelpful, that lead us towards death. Part of the Christian church has been teaching people to pursue the kinds of things that lead to life and teaching them to avoid the things that lead to death. There's an example of this in Acts chapter 15 where a group of Christians got together and gave advice on how to pursue godly living, godly living to Gentile people. And this is what they said, Acts 15, verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain. There are things that if you're a Christian, you should stay away from. What kind of things? Uh, abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So stay away from idols. From blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell the shortest letter of all time. And this church was giving advice to a whole bunch of people that were wondering, if I become a Christian, what changes should happen in my life? The key word there is abstain. There are things that you must walk away from, not kind of not participate in, but actually turn and walk in the other direction. The, the church in Jerusalem gave this advice, but it was hard to apply. And Pergamum is one of the churches who would have received this advice. And yet Jesus says to them, I have this against you, that you, you tolerate some people who hold the teaching of Balaam. Jesus challenges them for two different things. The first is what he calls the teaching of Balaam. And this, again, is an Old Testament reference. So the first is Balaam. The second is the Nicolaitan. So I'm just going to go through both of them in order. So Balaam, there are people who hold to the teaching of Balaam, comes from the book of Numbers. If you've been reading the North Northview Reading Plan, you would have just gone through this in the last month. And Balaam's a, a, it's a very funny story. Like most people know it because it's the talking donkey story. If you've ever read it, nod your head if you read it, the talking donkey. Yeah, it's a bizarre story. And the story, that's not even the, the best part. The, the point of that story is not a donkey talk to a dude. It is there is a man who received a clear instruction from God and chose to disobey it, chose to try to work around it. And that is kind of like Christian life. We have God's word, and it says, this is how you live. And we say, but maybe my situation's different. So Jesus references this story to remind the people that there is a consistent temptation to go after the things that God says are bad for you. Numbers 25, 1 to 3 describes the people of Israel following the teachings of Balaam. This is what they did. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Strong language. 
These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. And the angel of the Lord, or the anger of the Lord, was kindled against Israel. Balaam did two things. Balaam presented people with idols, and Balaam offered people women, offered men specifically women. He gave them the offer of, hey, like, there's pretty girls here. Go shoot your shot, and uh, they'll marry you. Go for it. They might not even have to marry you. That's not that different than our world. And what Jesus says to this church is, wait a minute, there are people in your church that are teaching like Balaam. Numbers 15 records that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Acts 15 tells us that the church had no confusion about this topic. God says, stay clear of idols, stay clear of sexual morality, abstain from these things. And yet there are people in this church who are teaching something different, who are teaching that grace covers all, who are teaching go for it, the Lord will forgive, the Lord will bless you. Worship the idols. It doesn't matter. It all works out in the end. And Jesus challenges the church of Pergamum and says, what are you doing tolerating this kind of teaching? The second, in verse 15, is called the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we don't know much about this group. This term shows up twice in Revelation. It shows up in the letter to the Ephesian church, and it shows up in the letter to the Pergamum church. We don't know much about this group of people, but what we can guess, what we can infer from the passage is that they're doing something very similar. They are, they're teaching some level of what we often call cheap grace. It all works out in the end. Just say I'm sorry and it's fine, even if you do it over and over and over again. And this cheap grace was a message that was being shared amongst the Pergamum church. And Jesus says, I'm not okay with this. I have this against you, that you tolerate these teachings, the teachings of Balaam, the teachings of these Nicolaitans. Right? It's an overuse of mulligans. It's the idea that you can just keep swinging and you can keep missing and it'll all work out. And this message is shared by well-meaning people. And this message is shared by false teachers. And this passage warns against both. It warns the people of Pergamum that their toleration of this false teaching will lead them into tremendous hardship, tremendous suffering. I think this is a great opportunity for us to talk about the nature of Christian life. Because I think we hear things like this, that it's not cheap grace, that it's not just get out of jail free, it's not mulligan after mulligan, and we start to get nervous. Because our experience is that we often fail with the same thing over and over again. And we're like, I thought you said God gives unlimited second chances, Freddie. Are you backtracking? How do I balance these two things? And I think there's two equal ditches that we fall into. Christian life is not about perfection. You will never be perfect. If you think you will, you will fail your whole life and you will feel terrible about yourself. So that's one danger that we fall into. But Christian life is not about cheap grace. It's not a nothing religion. It's not a zero effort endeavor. So you must make an effort, but that effort needs to go with the understanding that you will fall short. So if we were gonna talk about Christian life in an accurate way, I think we would say something along the lines of Christian life is about change. It's about growth. It's about transformation. And the Bible uses these kinds of words. If we're going to use the language of this passage, we would say that Christian life means you conquer with the strength that God patiently provides. And conquer 
in this passage does not mean just suffering. Uh, it actually means sin. It means repentance. It means something actually has to change in your life. I, I watch movies like everyone else does, and I, I will fixate on particular quotes. I learned this from my dad. Uh, my dad watched Wild Hogs in like 2006 and quoted one line from that movie for the next 15 years of my life. Um, so I, I learned that curse from him, or I inherited that curse from him, so I do that. And I fix it on particular phrases. And one that I have deeply loved is in the Equalizer movie with Denzel Washington. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Uh, th it is a, the story of a dude who just helps people. He helps a uh, super overweight guy. He helps a lady who got robbed. He helps people who are getting extorted, right? His whole purpose in life is just to help people uh, through violent means. I'm not advocating for his way. I'm simply saying he's helping people. For the purposes of this story, I'm emphasizing his help, not his violence. Uh, and he has a phrase that he uses as he's talking to the security guard. Every time he talks to the guy, he's like, bro, progress, not perfection. And as I watched the movie, I was like, great phrase. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was like, man, that's a great phrase. Because Christian life is that. If we're saying Christian life means you conquer, Christian life means you repent, Jesus explicitly says, repent, change, then we should think of Christian life in that way. That it's progress, not perfection. We do fall short, but it requires a change. The question then is, how do I take that first step? How do I take that first step towards actual change when my experience for most of my life has been failure every time I try to change? How can I, like, is there something God has done to give me a boost of confidence, to give me the motivation I need to take that first step? And just like Jesus promises secret manna, he promises another thing in this passage that is the motivation that helps us move forward. Jesus promises a white stone with a new name. And to us, that means basically nothing. You're like, Jesus is going to give me a rock? I'm impressed. Thank you for your rock. It means nothing. But in the historical context of this town, that was something quite significant. I told you earlier that this city, Pergamum, had a temple to the Greek god Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And they had a famous physician who lived in that city and practiced medicine there on gladiators. Something that was common to gladiators was that people would buy soldiers or people that like, they thought would be good at fighting. They would keep them as slaves and they would use them as gladiators. But if you were good at fighting, it was possible to earn your freedom. And when a gladiator earned his freedom, they were given something called the tessera, which was a little white rock that had a little seal on it, a little pledge, a new name, if you will. And what Jesus is saying to people like you and me is, hey, you know that, you know that when someone is freed from slavery and they get that little rock, that little rock that says they're no longer slaves, they don't have to fight anymore on their own? I'm gonna give you that. What Jesus is saying to Christian people is he's taking a, a culturally accessible image, this little rock that everyone would know what it meant. And he's saying, I'm giving you a new name. If you are a Christian, you are no longer a slave. No one owns you anymore. You don't have to do the bad thing. Now you can actually follow me. There is new ownership in this establishment. And Jesus is promising this new name as the motivation for new life. Jesus says, you believed in me. 
You've endured. All you have to do is take that first step. And if you take that first step, if you are a Christian, I'm giving you this new name. I'm giving you another chance, a second chance, another opportunity. But we do have to take that first step. The verb that gets used in the passage is conquer. Conquer takes effort. Conquer takes faith. Conquer takes a step. There are times in God's word where as we get to a verb, the tense of that verb is massively important. And conquer is one of those things. It is a present active participle, which unless you're an English teacher, it means nothing to you. The importance of it is that it means it is a continuous action that started at some point but continues over and over and over again. Conquering is a life thing. It is a progress, not perfection kind of thing. And Christian life becomes this conquering life the moment that you become a Christian. If, if we were going to go broader, what does the rest of the scripture teach about this phenomenon? We would say that the death of Jesus is what establishes a new name for us. When the promise of God is that if you put your faith in Jesus, his death frees you from slavery to sin. And you have another chance to, to live for him free of any constraint to do wickedness. You are saved by Jesus so you can conquer sin. I think this truth pushes us in, in two distinct directions. I think there are two distinct applications of this. I think the first is that we need to repent of cheap grace. I, I've grown up in the church my entire life, and my experience with grace has been that it is quite cheap. I know God will forgive, so I don't feel like I really have to change. And you skate through life doing the same thing over and over again. My great fear for you and why is that you will believe that lie. That you will go through your entire life thinking that nothing you do matters. God forgives anyways. It's all going to be fine. And you'll have a great life. You'll marry someone, you'll have kids, you'll have a great job, and you will go your entire life fully unchanged. That's not Christian life. Revelation 2 reminds us that Christian life is a conquering life. And if Christian life is a conquering life, then we cannot view grace as cheap. It costs someone their life. And it costs someone their life so that you could get a new name and that with this new name, you could live a conquering life. Jesus has given you a new name so you would live into it. And I think opportunities like this, reminders like this from God's word, beg the question, when was the last time you changed something you say, do, or think? Because the Bible commands it. If you can't answer that question, that's, that's a problem. Christian life is conquering life. Secondly, I think this means that we repent of actual sin in our life. I think the attitude that we have is that grace is cheap. But on top of that, we have this second struggle where we don't always repent of the things that we battle. I think that we sometimes mischaracterize repentance as an emotion. I'm sorry. I feel bad. I feel guilty, right? I, I see this in, in my son all the time where I will watch him smack his brother in the face 
So Isaiah will hit August in the face, and we say, don't do that. And he says, instantly, not even looking at August, sorry, and moves on. I think we think of Christian life in that way sometimes, where we know the Bible says something. This passage reminds us, we turn from sexual immorality, we turn from idols, and we say, yeah, my bad, Lord, sorry, and we change absolutely nothing. Repentance means change. Change means that you identify a, a sin and then you pursue a next step, an action item. Something must be different. I'm just going to quick fire three sins that uh, I myself struggle with and I'm confident that young adults struggle with because I talk to many of you. I think we struggle with gossip or slander. And I think we feel bad about it. We try not to roast people, but then someone else says something and you have to jump in. Right? And then we feel bad about it. Someone else calls us out and we say, sorry, I'm sorry. And then we do it again the next time we're together. That's not repentance. That's not even like feeling bad, honestly. That's empty words. Repentance means you actually say less words. That's an actionable step. I recognize that I struggle not to say negative things about people. So when I'm in a group, I sit there and I think, do I have to say the joke I'm about to say, yes, I have to. It's about Adam. I'm cooking him. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Or you say, no, I, actually, I don't have to say this. Uh, I'm trying to live a conquering life because Jesus gave me a new name so that I did not have to be the same person I've always been. Conquering repentance means change. Or what about sexual sin? Whether it's with actual partners or with pornography, that is a consistent struggle in our young adult community. And we do feel bad about it. We want to change. I've met with many of you and we've talked about change. But then the experience is that change takes quite a long time. And I think in those moments, in the moments that I have struggled with these things, I have felt really bad. I felt very shameful. I felt afraid to talk to people. But none of those emotions actually moved me to a next step. What moved me to a next step was when I got an accountability partner. That was the next step. That is what helped me in the battle with sexual sin. That is what will help you in your battle with sexual sin. Repentance means actual change. Actual change is not feeling bad, not thinking bad about yourself. It's an action step, like an accountability partner. Uh, lastly, I think we all struggle with anger. We struggle to forgive. We, we have big emotions, and we share those big emotions. And I think we feel bad about that, so we apologize when we share those big emotions in unhealthy ways. But feeling bad about it is not repentance. Repentance is change. So change would be finding a healthy outlet for that anger. Um, when, when I was a kid, uh, my, so I struggle with anger. That's why I picked this one. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember my mom uh, would just give me an axe, like, or a little hatchet, which is a weird thing to give someone when they're angry. Uh, as I look back, I'm like, did you think this fully through? And then she would send us into the backyard, and she's like, chop wood until you're longer angry. And it actually was remarkably helpful. Uh, I remember being mad at my brother. I remember being mad at my mom, mad at my dad, mad at my circumstances. And something about just chopping wood over and over again. I'm like, man, being mad got me nowhere. Uh, just like chopping wood is getting me nowhere, it is doing nothing. Oh, my anger is also doing nothing. Change is finding a healthy outlet for the intense emotions that you feel. When we read this passage, that 
often we skip over because it's Revelation. Revelation's weird. We are reminded that Christian life is a conquering life, conquering suffering, conquering sin. I think this helps us, this combined with the second chances that God gives, helps us understand accurately what the Bible teaches about Christian life. God is slow to anger. God is patient with us. We often drop the ball. And God continues to give second chance after second chance after second chance. But God gives those second chances so we can do something with it. And when we read Revelation 2, we are reminded that we conquer with the strength that God patiently provides. My challenge to you as you leave today, as you're talking to your friends, as you're driving home, is think about your life. If you are a Christian, if you are trying to walk with Jesus, where are you conquering sin? Where are you conquering suffering with the strength that God provides? I think this is a significant question that everyone needs to have an answer for. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite the worship team up. Father God, thank you for this word. Lord, we recognize that it is a hard word. It's a challenge to be convicted by your word when we come across it and we realize that we fall short of your glorious standard. Uh, we say things, we do things, we think things that show uh, that we struggle with everything your scripture tells us not to do. So, Father, I pray for myself. I pray for the worship team. I pray for every person here. Lord, we need your help. We need the strength that you patiently provide to be able to conquer sin, to be able to conquer suffering. So, Lord, just like you promised in this passage, give us that secret manna. Give us that white stone with a new name. Lord, we are forgiven people. We pray that we would take those second chances and live for you. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.